it's really funny that all that stuff happened in the first that first 2007 i think that the first 2007 was where i realized yeah, this feels like I should call it sketch noting. Before that, it's funny, like up to that point, it was like the proto name for it was sketch tunes. Like I was, it was sort of like was cartoons and sketching. But when I did this event, it was a little less like cartoons and just more like sketching and noting. And that word just came to me. So it was right at that event when I just really started calling it sketch noting. And for whatever reason, that name seemed to make sense to a lot of people and they liked it. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory Podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, we are talking to someone who has impacted my life in ways that very few have. Today, we are talking with Mike Rohde, the author, and I guess you can say inventor, of Sketchnotes, the unique method of taking notes visually. And before we get into my conversation with Mike, if you like and enjoy the show, please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Apple and Spotify use these ratings as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on their charts. Better yet, please recommend this show to at least one friend you think will like it. And hey, while you're at it, one enemy who will like it as well. It's time we bring the world together over the common love of the Baby Got Backstory podcast. Today's guest is Mike Rohde. Mike is a designer and the author of two best-selling books, The Sketchnote Handbook and The Sketchnote Workbook. He teaches and evangelizes sketchnoting and visual thinking literacy around the world. He's a principal designer and visualizer at Johnson Controls. His team helps group and define problems and imagine new solutions using human-centered design thinking principles. Mike illustrated the best-selling books, Rework, Remote, The $100 Startup, and The Little Book of Talent. And as I mentioned, Mike's book changed my life. I'm not, I'm not joking here. I believe it was Brent Weaver who suggested the book to me in passing. And it wasn't supposed to be life-changing. Just a little recommendation from a friend. Something he had heard of or briefly seen. Hey, you should check out this book about sketchnoting. I, th- I think that's what it's called is what he told me. But when I opened up the book, it was as if Mike was speaking directly to me, to the way I saw the world, to the way I learned, to the way I listened at events. But I had self-doubts. I didn't and still don't see myself as an artist. My drawings are rough and crude, but Mike's book told me I could do it. If I followed his teachings, if I followed his steps. And you know what? He was right. A whole new world opened up for me. My aperture expanded and I was able to communicate in a way that was authentic to me in a way that was beneficial to me and appreciated by others. Today, I get stopped by others who crane their necks to see my notes. I've shared my notes at the requests of others and classmates and people at conferences. And most importantly, it has helped my memory of key ideas and events in a way that handwriting just can't. Oh, and by the way, I have the world's worst handwriting. Several times a day, I lose an idea or a to-do item on my list because I can't read my own handwriting. Drawing in big type and pictures was designed for me. Recently, my good friend Keith Roberts and I were interviewing one another, and he asked me about sketch notes. We published that interview to YouTube, and you might imagine my surprise when on a Saturday morning while drinking coffee, Mike Rohde emailed me saying he liked our video. That started an email conversation back and forth, and here we are. I'm so excited to introduce you to Mike Rohde, and this is his story. I am here with Mike Rohde, the author of the Sketchnote Handbook in the follow-up, the Sketchnote 
workbook. And as I told Mike when we when we just met on uh, Zoom here a couple minutes ago, it is a real honor because Mike is a personal uh, hero of mine. Uh, I'm a big fan of sketchnoting. Uh, I did a little YouTube video about it and via the power of of the search engines and crawling algorithms uh, that found its way to Mike and Mike reached out and said, wow, that was really cool that you liked my sketchnoting. And I said, yeah, that's really cool that you liked my video about your sketchnoting. <laughs> and, so, and so here we are. And so Mike, let's just get right to it. Like what is sketchnoting? So sketchnoting is this way of capturing information visually. So it's note-taking, but you're not limited to only writing. You can write and you can draw pictures and you can do lettering and use icons and color uh, to express yourself in a way that's more expressive and I think um, provides more uh, ability to remember and recall information than simply writing in text. Yeah, I would agree. That's one of the things that I love most about it is the ability to recall. I mean, I'll be flipping through old notebooks and I'll see like something funny that I I drew that was it was meaningful to me. And I'm like, yes, I completely remember what that was about and what we talked about in the takeaway versus if I'm thumbing through and I see a bunch of text and, you know, it just doesn't resonate in the same way. So that that memory mm-hmm. recall is one of the, the biggest things I love about it. And, you know, I think one of the first questions most people probably have is, you know, do I have to be an artist? Do I have to be have this immense talent to be into sketchnoting? That's a really great question. And um, when I used to present in person, I haven't presented so much in person lately. One of the first questions I would ask in one of my workshops, whether they were an hour or a full day, is uh, who here feels like they can't draw? Please raise your hand. And usually 80 or 90% of the room would raise their hands. And I would get excited about that because having done the workshop you know, hundreds of times now, I know that by the end of at least an hour, people will feel more confident in their ability to draw. And the key to it is exactly what you pointed out. People are concerned that this is art. And if I'm not a good artist, I can't do it. And so it's really fun to show them another way, another way to to visualize. It doesn't necessarily rely on the art that they may have been taught in school, which in a lot of, for a lot of people is baggage. It's more harmful than helpful to getting started. So one of my mantras is ideas, not art. And it's not, it sounds very um, provocative to an artist. Um, I'm an artist as well. And I don't feel that way at all. I think what what it means to me, and the reason I use that term, is the idea that people get so hung up on their ability to draw being a stumbling block that I needed to take that stumbling block away from them. I needed to provide them a simpler way to visualize what they were thinking that would not be so demanding and so difficult for them to do, right? And especially in an environment where you're doing this live while think people are talking and being able to draw, making it simple is a really, really big key to getting people to do this because you can, you know, most people who come to the classes already can write. So, I mean, unless you're teaching, you know, second graders or something like that, that the challenge would just be writing, right? Maybe actually the second grader could draw better than they could write. But for most people, they can already do notes uh, as it is, right? They can write things, but they are really afraid of drawing. In fact, I kind of wonder if um, the fear of drawing is actually stronger than the fear of public speaking in some ways. And the reason I say that is, as you think about it, let's say you're a a really successful business person, maybe a CEO or a high-powered executive, and you're supposed to go and draw something. Well, if you, can, if you can't draw any better than a fourth grader, that's not going to be your best side. You don't want to reveal your weakness, right? So it can be really scary for someone who feels like that's a weakness in their life to admit it to someone else. So I think it's really important to, in these workshops and also individually, to create some kind of a safe space where it's okay to not be great at drawing. And again, so it comes back to the simple way of drawing that makes it possible for non-artists to do this work. Uh, and to see that they've actually got tons more capabilities than they probably realized when they walked in the room. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And you talk a bit about writing and this and this idea of writing and how we all know how to write. But you know, to me, there's this mythology that artists are born; they come out of their 
mother and they are just talented. And when you were speaking, it, it reminded me that, well, yes, while we all can write, it's a learned skill. We, we don't come out uh, as babies with the ability to, to make characters. And we actually spend quite a bit of time practicing. And we have, um, you know, in our class, we have dotted paper and all these things to make the most basic characters. And what I really like about sketchnoting is this same idea that it's something that you can learn and you can build up your own alphabet, so to speak. You can build up your own library of things that you can draw. And it really is more about being suggestive. And I think, you know, what I really love in, um, I don't remember which book it is, but there's, there's a variety of ways of even doing like human figures. Like I'm like terrible mm -hmm. at human figures, but you can do stick figures with pointy noses. And just by the way that you can't the line or have an arm movement, you can suggest motion and all sorts of things. So really taking that away and using sketchnoting more as a communication device and something mm -hmm. that people can learn. And so, that, you know, that's something that at least that I've taken away from your books that, you know, with a little bit of practice, like you can build up your own library and, and get pretty, pretty good, at least for your own skill level of wherever you want to be. Yeah. And I mean, it, it comes back to, is it helping you be better, be a better person, right? Is it helping you if you go to a conference and you want to learn something, is it helping you remember and helping you process and helping you learn better? Like I could care less if it looks awesome, right? That's not the point of it. In fact, you don't even have to show it to me. You can keep it private if that's what you feel like. Uh, I think that's sort of a misnomer with sketch notes that seems to travel with it as well. If you sketch note, then you have to publish it on social media and show everybody in the world your work. Well, you can, but I don't think it's required. It's first for you. And then for other people, it's always going to have more meaning for you because you're the one that did it. And all those little shorthands that you're doing as you're creating the sketch notes mean a lot more to you, especially since you were there in the moment when it was happening, right? It's going to bring back memories that nobody else has got in their heads. So I think actually the, the more important skill in sketch noting is actually listening and analysis so the ability to listen and to make sense of what's being said and to then be able to draw it is really key. So if you have, you know, scribbly, scratchy uh, drawings and writing and stuff, but you're able to listen and make sense of something and capture it, that's going to be much more valuable than a beautiful sketch note that, you know, is doesn't represent what, what you were learning or what you heard. So I do think listening is kind of like the secret weapon that a lot of people overlook for drawing really well. And I think, um, you know, drawing is sort of a part of it, but it's, it's almost like a whole body experience of listening and drawing. And it, it involves every part of your body, which is another good reason to do it because it's really fully engaging in a lot of ways. And so you're in Wisconsin now, is that where you grew up? Mm -hmm. I grew up in the Chicago area, actually, as a kid and moved here when I was in my teens and have been here for, for quite a while, raised a family here, really like this area. I uh, always felt good being a Midwesterner. I like the season. So it's been a really good fit for me and my family. And uh, I, li I like being here. I kind of like being from Milwaukee. There's It's kind of a cool little town that sometimes people don't always think about. And when they come here, like, this is a really cool city. How did I not know about this city? So it's kind of fun to sort of know my way around and know the cool places to take people. And yeah, it's kind of fun. It's, it's uh, good to be from the Midwest and in the Midwest, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I can attest. I, uh, last time I was in Milwaukee was, I think, during the polar vortex like two years mm. ago, and I couldn't really go outside very much, but uh, <laughs> it was it was really great and really cool scene there. And uh, I, I can't remember the name of it, but I went to this really cool kind of indie uh, movie theater, and I see that you're into movies there with your background mm -hmm. with Blade Runner and Star Wars and mm -hmm. Back to the Future, mm -hmm. and, and that's a big love of mine, too. So yeah, I, I really, really loved that in uh, Wisconsin. And so when you were growing up in Chicago and then in into Milwaukee, I mean, were you always kind of doodling? Were you always thinking in images? I think I was when I look back as a kid, you know, we, we were, I guess, lower middle class. I don't know. I don't know. That can be judged a lot of different ways, but we didn't have like tons of money. If I asked for stuff, like maybe I'd get it for Christmas or maybe my birthday. So I didn't have lots of toys. We had used bikes that my dad would get from a cousin and fix it up. And my dad was good at fixing things. So typically we would get things that were repurposed, which I kind of appreciate now. And so if I wanted something, I would sort of have to create it. So I got into making my own comic books and I made little newspapers and books. And, you know, I did drawing a lot because 
it was kind of fun. I think a lot of it, I was seeing things and the way I saw things was a little bit unusual for a kid. So I remember as a little kid, my parents tell me that I basically memorized the fronts of old cars and I saw the faces in the cars. So the headlights and the grills all had faces to me. So you could be driving down a road and I would say, oh, that's a Buick. And as I got older, oh, that's a LeSabre. Or, you know, like I could identify the differences between these cars by the identifying grills or taillights or other, you know, the lines of the vehicles. Um, and I think that actually encouraged me to draw those. So I could draw them from memory and I can still do some. I don't practice like I did when I was a little kid. But, um, you know, that the ability to memorize and sort of turn cars into objects, I think sort of prime me in some ways for this idea of doing the visual library that you talk about. Like, how can you break down these complex things into simple, simple shapes or simple objects that you could recreate and you have the essence of the thing, even though it's like, you know, 10 lines, you can capture the essence of a Pontiac LeSabre, right? So um, that, that also came into play later when I was in college. I was a print major and became a graphic design major. One of the things I loved was typography. And that was another thing that I could memorize the letter forms. So certain letter forms go with certain typefaces and you could spot a typeface. And all you really need to know is like three or four of the key letter forms. And if you see it in a sentence, you can spot, oh, that's Gil Sands or that's whatever, right? Because of specific characteristics. So I think it's the same kind of thing. It's like identifying and boiling things down and then being able to uh, rely on that memory. I think that's helped me now in doing that kind of that same kind of work and drawing was always sort of part of my life and it just never they never were no one was able to ever shake it out of me so I guess I'm lucky in that way that I got to draw since I was a little kid and I've really never stopped uh, until now even in my professional life I found a way to kind of squeeze it in or sometimes they say it leaks out of me whether I like it or not so that's been a real I'm really fortunate that that's true for me. Yeah, and, and that was going to be my question. So your, were your parents cool with you pursuing a career in art? Did they see that as a way that you were going to be able to to make a living? I am sure for, you know, the way you just described it, that uh, middle to lower middle class, that like, hey, they probably were like, hey, we just we just want to make sure Mike is okay. You know, he makes yeah, a living yeah. and, and, and he can make a buck. Were they, were they cool with the art path? Well, my mom is always actually very artistic and my dad was very good at troubleshooting. So I took on both of those aspects from them. So the funny thing about me is I always had sort of a technical side and an artistic side. So I had both those. Uh, I think my dad was probably more concerned and I'm sort of facing this now because I've got a son who's just turned 18. So we're kind of wondering like, what's he going to do right now? I'm in the same spot as my dad was, but I think he just didn't understand like what was an option then. Like he didn't know, understand what graphic design or commercial art was. And our, our high school happened to have a really good printing program. Um, at the time where you could um, learn printing in the school, do all this work, and then you'd get an apprenticeship and get a job in industry and just transition and be a full-time, get, make pretty good money as a printer back in the day. But um, as it would, as luck would have it, it was right around the time of a kind of a recession. And so the jobs that normally would have been wide open for a kid like me coming out of high school with those skills suddenly dried up. And so I went to a technical college uh, again, in printing. And um, in my printing uh, class there, we did lots of cross-training. So I ended up in these design classes with designers in the commercial art or graphic design program. And so I ended up in these design classes and they're like, what are you doing in printing? You should be a designer. <laughs> and uh, so I sort of thought, you know, that's that's a pretty good idea. I'm pretty good at this. And I do like the the technical side of the printing. So I switched majors and became a uh, print designer to start my career. And I think I always had the advantage of, you know, I mentioned I was always had a technical and an artistic side. Having come from that printing side, I understood the, the reason why printing worked and what the limits were. So when I did my design work, I sort of always had that in the back of my head and I could go to a press check with a printer and I could have a, uh, a discussion with them about ideas for making things print better or, you know, my stuff would tend to print pretty well because I knew what I should and shouldn't do because I was a printing student. So that's sort of where I made my shift into design. And my dad's ended up being very happy with my career choice. But I think a lot of it is he just didn't understand. 
at the time that there was actually a way to do art and be paid for it. He just thought of the starving artist eating ramen noodles in a studio apartment, right? And, and starving their way through life or something. So, you know, he, he did his best and, you know, he ultimately you had to trust your kids to make good decisions and that the, the training that you gave them up till they were 18 would uh, rub off on them a little bit. And it seems like it did. <laughs> yeah. And so your dad, you know, had the wherewithal to, to step back and let you be your own man. But like, what were you thinking? Were you super confident coming out of school that like you were going to conquer the world with your art degree or was there, were you uncertain? Like how clear were you coming out of, of like, if this was going to work or not? Well, I was pretty hard. I was pretty hardcore for printing. Like I was pretty good at that. I had an artistic eye for it and I was good at the technical stuff. I understood the concepts and knew how to apply them. And, you know, there was a little bit of an, at the time, because it was still pre-computer when I was coming out, um, there was a little bit of artistic flair to printing at the time, right? Because you did things, most things you did manually. So there was some human aspect to it that you could, you could be kind of almost artistic in this, in this profession. And I was pretty good at it. I, I was pretty dedicated to going into that. And then, uh, like I said, the economy sort of changed the direction and I'm glad it did because, you know, it, it sent me back to college because otherwise I might've just gone right into that business and would have been a printer. And so, you know, it sort of made me pause a little bit and rethink. There was a time for, I think for a summer that I was into photography as well. So, you know, I've always had an interest in these, I guess, communications or visual arts in general. So uh, all those things are still interesting to me doing photography. I, by no means a professional photographer, but, you know, I like to, I like uh, taking good shots. I like good lighting, like all those things sort of uh, informed all the work that I do now. So I tend to be, I guess, you know, I wouldn't call myself a Renaissance man, but I like a lot of different things. I like to have competence in different areas. So um, having those skills has definitely worked out well for me being able to do as a solo person or partnering with just one or one other person, like in the case of the Kickstarter, you know, uh, shooting, uh, shooting photos and doing illustrations and, you know, all that kind of stuff, all those skills have come, uh, become very valuable now <clears throat> as I'm doing this, you know, teaching and product work and even the books that I wrote, all that printing skill, uh, that I had sort of forgotten for a long time came in handy because when uh, Peach Pit, the publisher came to me, they said, Hey, um, can we give you like $5,000 and have you design your own book? I was like, yeah, sure. So um, I took it all the way from writing the text and sketching and doing the illustrations to production. So I'm quite an unusual author in that sense that I actually turned over my production files to the printer and they ran the book based on my production work. So that's, um, that was a really nice um, thing to have control from end to end over the whole product, over both of the books. So, you know, at the time, it's sort of like, you know, the Steve Jobs quote, you can't see how things, how the dots line up until you look back. And that was definitely one of those cases, like going into it, you told me when I was a printing student that one day I would write this book about uh, visual note-taking and I would design the book and it would be a bestseller. And I'd travel the world teaching it, like, you gotta be crazy. Like, you, I would never have believed that, but here we are looking back and all those experiences and all that um, knowledge that I gained over time really did help me in doing the things that I'm doing now. Yeah. And just for those of you listening, since we are on an auditory medium versus visual, like if you, you know, I do want to point out like the complexity of your book. This is not like, you know, I think, I think, you know, today you can go, you can do an e-file, you can send it to Amazon, you can give them a little cover mm -hmm. art and they'll churn out a book that looks amazing. That looks like it was, you know, that's the real deal. Mm -hmm. But your book is a very visual, artistic book. Every page is hand-lettered. Every page is hand-drawn to some degree. And so that that's no, like, insignificant fact that, that you put <laughs> this book. Work. Yeah, you put this book together. I was yeah. like, $5,000? Like, they got a good deal for that. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> like, you know, I, I took that opportunity as, well, I can make money doing it, but I have control. That was really... Ultimately, it wasn't about the money. It was about the ability to make sure. So I, I've been through enough projects where I wasn't in control of things to know that when you turn it over to someone else, they just don't have your vision and, or your persnicketiness to make things exactly the way you want it, right? And maybe that's being a perfectionist, but you know, I, I'd heard stories of other 
uh, authors who are also designers who gave up that right to someone else. And they were really, really frustrated. Like they would spit covers and they would get all churned around. And you know, I just had a really great working relationship with my editor and all the people on that team um, that they trusted me and I trusted them. And we just really worked together well. And it it's uh, it worked out really well. And it's interesting. You mentioned uh, that the book being hand-lettered. Actually, one of the things that I realized as a print production designer was I do not want to handwrite this whole book because there's going to be too many typos that I'm going to make. So I actually reached out to a friend and said, hey, do you know somebody who does typeface work? And he's, yeah, sure. This guy named Del Witherington does that work. So I reached out and he was willing to um, make a typeface out of my handwriting. So we did several different fonts and that's what we used to produce the book. So it made it like almost like typesetting, like you would use a you know, Microsoft Word or something. And then in the end, we had turned that into a product. And now you can actually buy that typeface for your own projects. It's called the Sketchnote typeface. So, you know, this thing that we did for the book purpose ended up being, you know, an asset later that people use. In fact, um, three weeks ago, I saw an ad in a Costco flyer in my email was using my typeface. <laughs> so it's it's pretty crazy how you think it's this one-time thing and it can often have greater impacts than maybe you imagined in the first place. Yeah. I mean, that's gotta be quite the feeling when you see your own typeface in the, the Costco flyer and you tell Dell, if he's ever looking for a model of a typeface, that's illegible, uh, I would be happy to, to, to be, you could use my handwriting. Uh, uh, you can, uh, it's just like, but it makes me feel a lot better that that was typeset versus, versus yeah. hand-drawn. So most of it. Yeah, some of yeah. it some of it was handwritten like some of the in the sketches sketch notes do have people's actual handwriting but i mean the body of the text was my my uh typeface which you know delve was pretty sneaky he found out there's a feature in this in typefaces you can do called uh, contextual alternates and some some software like our page layout software will use it and what it does is you can have like 10 different a's and 10 different e's and 10 different h's and it will randomly rotate through them to make the make the typeface look more uh, random. Mm. So especially important for a handwritten style typeface to, you know, not like not the same A over and over again, it would actually rotate through. I think he, I think he capped it at like four. He has four characters for each letter that can potentially spin in there randomly. So it gives it a little bit more of a random feel to it, which I thought was kind of a neat little nuance that nobody but me and Delve and now your listeners will know about. <laughs> Or care about? <laughs> I know. I think that's fascinating. I never knew that that was possible. And just like the, you know, even you know, just technology. Like there's a, there's mm-hmm. such a custom aspect to it. Yet it's it's really brought to us uh, mm-hmm. via technology. It's, it's it's incredible to me. So you mentioned this a little bit, but you know, what's what's challenging about writing a book like this or writing a book mm-hmm. in general? Like, what don't we know? Well, I would say this: if you're thinking about writing a book, I encourage you to do it because I think. I never thought I would write a book and here I am an author of two books. So I think there is definitely, there are definitely books in people. So I would encourage you to do it, but I would also go into suggest you go into it clear eyed and know that writing a book is a huge undertaking. It's like walking the Appalachian trail or climbing a mountain. And I say that in the sense that um, the thing that I learned about writing the first and then the second book was um, if you're used to pulling all nighters and doing projects, forget it. It doesn't work that way. I, I kind of grew up in the design business where you could like pull all nighters and do like an annual report in a weekend or, you know, stuff like that. You could pull it off, right? You cannot do that with a book. It just doesn't, it won't accept that option. You can do an all, you know, you can spend all weekend and write something, but it's going to be a long haul. So basically you know that it's going to be a long haul and sort of plan accordingly. What I found really valuable for me was having a team that would sort of keep me on track and make sure that I was, doing the things that I was doing. So editors, editors are hugely important. If you think you can get away without an editor and you're writing a book, then you're fooling yourself. You need editors, both um, copy editors to make sure you're not saying dumb things to, um, you know, other, other editors who make sure that your concepts make sense and hold up and challenge you and say, do you really believe that? Is that really true? Like those kind of things are going to make your work better. Like it's a pain in the moment, but it's better in the long run. So I think a good team is really important if you're going to write a book, even if you have to assemble it yourself. And then I would say the probably the last thing is, um, well, I'll say two more things. The, the next thing is you have to know that um, in a long haul project like this, uh, it's all about progress. It's not about 
achieving it. Like I said, you can't pull a weekender and knock out a book. I guess you could, but it might be a bad book. But it's going to take lots of revisions and lots of grinding. You just have to be like happy with progress. Like, hey, I made progress today. You know, even if it's writing a page or whatever it might be, like look at the progress and know that if you continue along that path, it's going to build up into a whole book. And I would say the last thing is uh, when you write a book and you're done with the book, you're only half done because the other half is promotion. And often that's actually harder than writing the book. (laughs) So, you know, know that um, promoting is going to be a ton of work and that it, it requires a lot of effort to do that as well. And, you know, something I learned in that space was don't do everything all at once. Like, so don't have all your podcasts launch on the first day, like spread them out. So they sprinkle through the, you know, a month or something. So it seems like you're everywhere for a month, right? That's going to be probably your, your best option to get people's attention, you know, repeated, repeated uh, action in, in their mind is sort of what, where it's at. So there's some wisdom for people who are thinking about book writing and creation. It's definitely worthwhile when you're done, but it's definitely a journey when you're going through it. And that's okay. I think you, it's good to have those lifetime experiences where it's, you can't do it in a weekend. You got to do it over months. Yeah. And so much more to a book than just, as you mentioned, writing it, you know, there's mm-hmm. the, the promoting mm-hmm. and thinking about what you're going to do. That's, that's great advice. And, and thank you so much for sharing that. This episode brought to you by Wild Story. Wait, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. A brand isn't a logo or a tagline or even your product. A brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. Wild Story helps progressive founders and savvy marketers build purpose-driven brands that connect their business goals with the customers they want to serve so that both the business and the customer needs are met. This results in crazy, happy, loyal customers that purchase again and again, and this is great for business. If that sounds like something you and your team might want to learn more about, reach out at www.wildstory.com and we'd be happy to tell you more. Now back to our show. I'd like you to take a moment and think back. And do you have a clear recollection of like when this thing sketch noting was born, when you look down in your notebook and you're like, I've got a, I've got a sketch note. <laughs> I actually do. And it's the funny thing is, is like, it actually started earlier than I realized, but I just didn't know what it was. And that, that actually tracks with so many people that I've met that said, Oh, I've been doing sketch noting for so long. And I just never knew what to call it, which is a great feeling right? I was sort of the lucky one that got to name it and the name that stuck. But I do remember um, that actually the first sketch note that I call a sketch note is one I did in early 2007. That's really where I think it started, where I intentionally went to a conference in Chicago from Milwaukee on the train, a design conference with a different mindset around note-taking. Up until that point for probably three, four years, I'd somehow gotten my myself to a place where I wrote like everything down and I used a pencil so I could erase mistakes. And I had a giant notebook, like, and it was a huge burden. I hate, I was really good at it and I hated it. It was the worst. And so early in 2007, I found said, I can't take it anymore. I got to do something else. And as a designer, I'm always faced with constraints and restrictions. You know, you can only have this many colors. You got to use that typeface. You got to use my ugly logo. All those kind of things are always in my life. Right. So I thought, well, what if I put a, if I put some constraints on myself, what would happen if I did that? So I thought, let's uh, now that, you know, at the time I didn't think about it, but um, I kind of did a George Costanza. Remember that episode of George Costanza decides to do everything opposite of what he normally does. (laughs) And then he like uh, starts dating a beautiful woman and gets the job of his dreams. You know, all these good things are happening because he's doing the opposite. It felt kind of like that where um, I said, okay, I'd normally carry a big book. What if I carry a pocketbook? Um, I usually use a pencil. What if I use a gel pen? So those were sort of my first two decisions. I sort of boxed myself in on the train. All I had with me was a pocket moleskin that I bought, I don't know, a month before and didn't know what to do with it because it was too beautiful. I finally had a purpose for the thing. 
And then I had these uh, G2 gel pens. I thought, okay, I'm just going to take these two things. I'm going to show up at this conference and see what comes out because I really wasn't sure. And once I sat down, the interesting side effect of these two limitations was I was faced with the fact that I couldn't write everything down that I normally did. And that when I did write stuff down, it couldn't, I couldn't erase it because it was ink. So it sort of put my, put my mindset in a different place. My mindset now shifted to, I need to really be thinking about what's being said right now. I can't, I can't just write everything down and maybe discover it later. I got to think about it now. I got to really listen closely. I have to really analyze what they're saying, decide if it's worth me putting on the page because I'm using a pen and then put it down. And from my perspective, I suddenly had tons of free time because before I was just writing, 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 writing. I never had time to think twice. So suddenly for me, I had all this free time to do like the lettering that I loved and drawing images that were popping up in my head or sketching something from one of the slides. And I, uh, I really loved it. I got to the end of that day and I just felt like this is the, this is the solution. I have to keep doing this. And I kept looking for opportunities to go to conferences and kept trying it. And that was really that conference in 2007 was really where I think sketchnoting was born for me intent that, you know, with intention. And then when I look back to my college years, when I was in that, remember I said, I switched from printing to design. I happened to dig up my old notebooks from those years uh, after sketchnoting had sort of taken off and said, holy cow, I was doing sketchnoting. I was doing this exact same thing in my classes. I was drawing and I was writing and I was doing lettering. And like, how did I forget that? What, what happened to me? over these last couple of years. And I think looking back now, I sort of realized that the, the technology side of me sort of took over. I got into Palm Pilots and PowerBook Duos and I, you know, I started typing everything and, you know, that I just sort of shifted my mind to a different place. So when I went back to analog and books, I just kept following the assumption that I had a keyboard in my hands and I could write everything instead of really realizing that you know, that thing I did in college was actually really effective for remembering and studying from. And I ended up not realizing that I would stumble back into what I actually had been doing before. So um, I didn't call it sketchnoting back then, but it really, when I look back at it, it is what I was doing. So I think I was probably doing it uh, all through college and probably back into high school to some degree in some form or another, but never really intentionally like as a thing, like I would call 2007s where I really put all the pieces together and realized, hey, this really works and I was aware of it before I sort of just did it naturally and accidentally here is where I really did it with intentionality. Yeah. And so if you weren't calling it sketch noting at that time, what, did you have a name for it? Or were you just like, Hey, this is just the way I do it. This is, that was this, just this the is way I did it. I, I didn't have a name for it. That's kind of funny. <laughs> and then, so you're, you're, you're Mike, you're doing your thing. You are, taking notes in your own visual way. And uh, like most great things, I have to imagine, I mean, you're doing it for you. I mean, you're not mm-hmm. probably thinking, hey, this is a speaking tour. This is a mm-hmm. this is a book. Like, when does it become a thing? Like, when do you start to get, where does it start to become like a real part of your life both? Well, I guess it's already become a part of your life from a conference standpoint, but like professionally, like when all of a sudden do you become like the sketch note guy? Well, there's sort of a couple of points along the way. So this is early 2007 when this first thing happened, and I kept on wanting to try it. So I think it was in the summer, the spring, or the late spring, early summer, the guys who run Basecamp now, they used to be called 37 Signals, they decided to do a conference at their at a space that they had access to for like 150 people. And so I thought I'd really like these guys, and I said, I'm going to go do this conference, and this would be a good chance to test out this note thing, the sketch noting thing that I'm playing with and see uh, how it works in this kind of setting, right? So I went to that event and I did that event and uh, Jim Kudal, who's friends with the Basecamp guys, they're also a Chicago firm. They're like an ad firm. They do, they're the guys behind the field notes, if you know what field notes are. Yeah, yeah. My friend Aaron Draplin, who's been on the show, is also Yeah, partner, so Aaron partner, has partnered yeah. up with those guys. Um, so they, Kudal partners, found my sketch notes on Flickr somehow and they put it on their blog and then 37 Signals, who's Basecamp, they put it on theirs. And that's that was a really big bump in like awareness. People started being aware of it. And then I kept doing it and doing it. And I went to South by Southwest that um, following spring, I think 2008, and, and did it. And I published it again. At the time, I was publishing on Flickr, and I used 
Creative Commons. And I intentionally used Creative Commons because at the time it was pretty popular. And the thing that I liked about it was I, I retained all my rights to the work, but I could build in usage rights right into the licensing. And what that meant at the time was bloggers, if they found the images compelling, they could just use an embed code and stick it right in their blog. And they wouldn't have to ask for me any, for any permission because I'd already pre-given it to them. So that was really important in spreading the concept. And that that got back to the South by Southwest leadership. So the next year they said, hey, Mike, um, if we give you a pass to South by, will you come and sketch note officially, like spend the whole week and just capture the experience of being here? It's like, yeah, sure. So I, that was my next event. So that was a really important one because at South by Southwest in 2009, I wanted to see like, could I handle this for a whole week? And what would get tired first, my brain or my hands? And it turned out my brain actually got more tired than my physical body did just from all the thinking and analyzing, but it was a blast. I really loved it. Uh, and that, so that was a really important point because then that sort of spread it even further. And then it was around 2011 or something like that is when the book stuff happened in between there, there was a point where I created Sketchnote army. And that was basically this desire to share other people's work. I'd been sharing and pumping my own work. And I just felt like it's not so much fun to be doing this alone. I mean, I started seeing other people doing it and it seemed like there's a movement and maybe I should be the one to capture this in one place because it was really hard at the time around 2008, 2009 to find this stuff. You just had to scrounge everywhere. I thought, well, what if, what would happen if I invited people to submit their stuff and we just put it on, on a website and then you just go to one place and you could see the stuff. So that was an important uh, moment in 2009. And shortly after that, the book deal came and in between there, you know, I did illustration work for, the guys at Basecamp for uh, rework and then later remote. So that was, those are also, you know, points that sort of brought awareness to that work. Right. So they, I think they all sort of added up over time and it just kept building. And once I wrote the book, you'd think after doing all that work on the book and there's a video that we did that suddenly it would take off. And I think it did pretty well, but you know, nobody knew who I was other than maybe they saw a book. So it took a little while for it to kick in, but, it just kept on growing and growing. I think the idea was that Seth Godin always talks about if the idea is good, you're probably not going to be able to stop it. And I think that's sort of what, what happened, right? Um, I sort of solved a problem in my own life, which was I hated taking notes in this old dreary way. And I found a way that made sense to me. And I figured, well, if it solved the problem for me, there's probably a few other people out there that it could help. And it turned out there were a lot of few other people out there, right? So I think that's why it just kept on growing and growing. And I just look back at these certain pivot points where it almost like, you know, hit a point and accelerated and it just con continues to do that. And now there's tons of people doing it and teaching it and sharing it. And I really like that. I love having lots of voices in the space. I think it just verifies that it's a real thing and it's definitely a benefit to people who adopt it. And it makes, you know, being in a community is way more fun than being all alone. So there's lots of benefits to the way that it's worked out over these many years. Yeah. And, you know, and I can even, my own experience, it's like I've been a part of some long-term uh, education classes and things like that. And there's just something magical about the sketch notes, right? Like people see me doing it and they're drawn to it. Like, I think everyone wants to do it as well. Like it's like this universal way of, of communicating. That's just so incredible. And so, when did you coin it sketchnoting? When, like, when did you be like, when were you like, this is the name? Well, I think actually, so it's really funny that all that stuff happened in the first, that first 2007. I think that the first 2007 was where I realized, hey, this feels like I should call it sketchnoting. Before that, it's funny, like up to that point, I was, it was like the proto name for it was sketch tunes. Like I was, it was sort of like was cartoons and sketching, but when I did this event, it was a little less like cartoons and just more like sketching and noting. And that word just came to me. So it was right after, right at that event when I just really started calling it sketch noting. And I don't know, for whatever reason, that name seemed to make sense to a lot of people and they liked it even over, I mean, more established names that existed before, like graphic recording, which is kind of a different thing or visual note taking, like, you know, sketch noting just has a little bit more of a branding ring to it, I guess, you know, it's less clunky and it's descriptive and it's concise and it just seems to work. So that's, that's sort of when it popped up was right at, right about that same time as the first sketch notes kind of appeared in my head. I had a name for them. So 
I guess it was destined to be. <laughs> Dest <laughs> destined to be. And so is sketchnoting now your, your full-time gig? Is that what you do for a living? It isn't actually. It's something I do uh, on the side. Um, I do it pretty steadily on the side. It's kind of my side, my side gig. I primarily, I work as a, a principal designer uh, doing user experience and service design uh, for a large organization. And I really like it. I like working in a team. I like, you know, I still have a real love for design in general, service design specifically solving, you know, the company I work for is a big industrial company. So there's all kinds of opportunities to apply these ideas and, you know, visualization opportunities like crazy because so much stuff is just bad PowerPoint. So the opportunity to do illustrations and sketch note and even, you know, doing using my design skills in that space is really, um, really powerful. And I see lots of upside and opportunity. So it's a lot of why I stay there. And, you know, I've got a family as well. So it's good steady work and it allows me to do this stuff on the side. And so far it's worked out pretty well. Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. And so do you have you know, I, I know you're probably not like your children, right? You're probably not supposed to talk about your favorite sketch note, <laughs> but do you have a, a favorite that you just, you know, you look back and you're like, you know what, that's, that's the full expression of Mike. That's, that's, that's it. There's a couple of them, but if I, if I was forced to pick one, um, there's one that's in my Flickr feed that I still look, that still has really fond memories for me. And it's, um, the story behind it is I was doing a work project in, um, the Oakland area in San Francisco. And we ended up going to Chez Panisse. We couldn't get into the main Chez Panisse, but we got into the cafe, which is like a smaller uh, venue. We got reservations for myself and two work colleagues. And I happened to have my notebook along. So I pulled my notebook out. And after I would finish a course, I would sketch out what it was and built this whole little two-page sketch note in my notebook. And it just really has, like it captures everything. Like it captures a moment in time, a really great meal with two good friends. If you look at it, it's not really, it's all black and white. So there's no color. Some of the stuff that I drew is not really super detailed. Like it's not a, it's not an illustration. It's not a piece of art. It's more of a, it's a sketch note. It's like the purest expression of a sketch note for me. And I really, every time I see that, I'm like, wow, that, that really turned out really good. And it was actually, it's kind of old. It's like 2012. It was right around the time, not too, not too long uh, before I started on the book work. So I was really fortunate that I had the opportunity and that one, among others, there's some other ones that I really like as well, but that if I was forced to pick one, that would be it. All right. Paper or iPad? You know, I, I was really, I got your headshot in for the the press kit mm -hmm. and you're standing with an iPad and, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not surprised I'm actually using an iPad right now. And I think it has, oh, by the way, there you are. Right. Uh, but, uh, as, as, as we're talking, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing Mike, but, um, yeah, yeah. iPad or paper or, or both. I'm a both person. I think of, um, I sort of think like when the iPad pro and the pencil came out, that was the moment where the iPad became useful to me as a drawing tool. Like I'd used it before for reading for like part of my book, I actually typed on an iPad with a keyboard. So, I mean, it had been useful to me. But as a illustration tool, a serious illustration tool, when the pencil came out, which I think is 2017 or 18, that's when I picked it up and I saw the, the value. And I always think of like, you know, I think there's sort of a desire always to like say, oh, the iPad is a paper killer. It's like, well, why does it have to kill it? Like, why can't I use both, right? You know, you go into a, a professional um, mechanics toolbox, they're not going to say wrench or hammer, right? They're, they need both of them because in some cases you need a wrench in some cases you need a hammer. Sometimes you need a six point wrench because man, that bolt is on there hard and you've shot it with some penetrating oil and you're going to have to whale on that thing. And like a adjustable wrench isn't going to work. Right. So even within wrenches, there's specific things. Right. So I think of like the iPad is sort of one tool and it depends on what I'm doing. Like if I need to do lots of changes, so like client work where I have to go back and modify things or move things or, I want the ability to shift things. That is often the best choice. And then there's other times when I want to use paper when I don't want to be potentially distracted, right? The problem with an iPad is you're like a second away from Twitter or Facebook or who knows what, right? So, and the battery can run out. I mean, they made the batteries last a long time, but if you forgot to charge it, you know, now all of a sudden you've got a care and feeding issue, right? A, a notebook and a pen, you know, is probably going to run 
the other the other funny thing I always say is like, you know, you know how many pieces of paper and beautiful pens you could buy for the cost of an iPad? Like you have a lifetime supply for what you'd pay for an iPad. Now that's not to knock the iPad. It is a valuable tool, but it's always again about what's the right what's the right purpose for the tool. And so I look at it as a spectrum all the way from, you know, paper to an iPad and I choose the thing that makes sense or that I feel is right. And I just like having options, I guess. Yeah, and th- that makes complete sense, but you know, you're talking about paper and and uh, pen and we were talking right before we recorded about just, you know, kind of this there's something magical about pen and paper, mm-hmm. you know. And so like mm-hmm. what's what's your favorite uh combination that you have got going right now. And, I, and if you're anything like me, it changes. Like mine has changed yeah. over time, you know, but, but I kind of come back to the same, the same kind of combo more often than not. Well, the last couple of years, I've become an ambassador for this company called Neuland. It's a German company that makes markers for graphic recorders. Graphic recording is basically like sketch noting, except graphic recorders typically work at large scale. They typically work in front of the room. So everybody watches them while they doing, while they're doing it, they have to be very skilled at listening and drawing. And these tools are built for those people, but they realize the value of sketch noting and they're starting to build more tools for sketch noters. So they they have a variety of tools that I really like the fine one line, which is designed for sketch noters in mind, um, have some really nice tools. The thing I like about Neuland too, is every one of them now uh, is refillable. So you can buy bottles of ink and refill your pens and just keep reusing them. If your nibs get squishy because they're felt tip, you can pull the nibs out and put new nibs in. So they're in effect, they're like lifetime investments, kind of like the tools I was mentioning, right? So those are really great tools. And the uh, the colors and the quality of the pigments are really great. So it's, it's not a hard thing to choose. Um, as far as gel pens go, you're exactly right. I sort of jump around for the last little while. I've been really into good old paper mate flares like you had in junior high school, black paper mate flare and boxes. And I just, you know, as they get too mushy, I just go to the next one and they just have a really nice, there's something about the feel of it that I really like. So that's another one. And then I'm always like uh, checking the latest gel pens and trying stuff out. The latest one that I've really liked is Sharpie of all pens has come out with a gel pen. And the one that I stumbled onto is a 1.0. So if you know your thicknesses of pens, it's really wide pen, but I love it because it just lays down this nice black line. It's really juicy, but because it's gel, it like dries nearly immediately. So I don't have to worry about smearing it so much. So that's sort of my latest gel pen that I'm into. And then as far as books go, I did a Kickstarter campaign with my friend Mike Schiano last year, and uh, we basically designed a sketchnote book that's ideal for sketchnoting. So it's really thick, 160 GSM, kind of a thick, almost cardstock like paper and bright white, and a polymer cover that's really tough, and then guides inside. But the paper inside is really fantastic. So I actually really, I really use my own notebooks to do sketchnoting with. And then for, you know, if I'm doing bullet journaling, which I do every day. I've been using the Leuchtturm brand of bullet uh, bullet journal or the dot grid books. And then there's also Neuland has just released one that's a little bit bigger that I've been using for a while since they sent me one as an ambassador and I've been testing it. It's been actually really nice. It's a little bit bigger than a typical five and a half by eight and a half sheet. So I get a little bit more space. So I've been enjoying that. So those are a couple, couple things that I've been using pretty regularly and quite enjoy. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, I have long been a Leuchtturm fan, and mm. that's been my go-to book. But uh, I've actually got one of yours on the way, and I'm very mm, excited cool. to to try that and, and get. I'd love into to that. hear what you think of the paper and the all that stuff as a product and branding guy. Yeah, as well as the Newland pens. Um, yeah, you know, I was hoping they had pink. I like to my accent ah. color is pink. You know, I like that a lot, and uh, they didn't have it, but they had some mm. other. So I got some. I got some other stuff that I'm very excited about. And like I we were talking about before the show started, I could just really geek out and try different, <laughs> different pens. I like the, you know, yeah. my go, my go-to that I keep coming back to is actually the, the pilot G tech, uh, that has that like kind yep. of scratchy feel and it's a thinner line, but like I have like less control. Nice. I do. Cause I like, I'll, I'll cross hatch or okay. that's how I'll fill it in. But like, or even in your technique, I'll, I'll do multiple lines down, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you know, I also feel like that's a little bit for me was like a, you know, more of a beginner pen, less control. Right. I can control the ink and, mm-hmm. and, and I do like playing with, um, fatter line pens as well it is interesting how like the pen you use can impact the way you draw so like a a real thick pen will sort of produce a certain kind of a 
it almost puts you in a in a mind state or something. And if you use a thin pen, it's puts you in a different mind state. You wouldn't think so, but I've noticed it's subtle, but it actually is there. And uh, it's, it's it also sounds like if you and I went into an office max or an office depot, we'd be the guys standing at the pens the pen aisle like for an hour, like look oh look at that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ne- never time. I've got like pen cases full, like, leaving like, with like an arm full of pens. And- yeah, yeah. I, I keep finding like pen cases with like pens that I packed for a trip that like then I like <laughs> set down and I pick up. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I've got all these pens. Like I forgot that I even like packed for a trip just in case, you know. So, uh, Mike, as we as we come to the end of our our time here, um, what's next for sketch noting? Where do you see this going? Where where do you hope it goes? Well, I'm really excited about um, a couple of things. So one thing that's really excited and I have a little tiny bit to do with, uh, but actually pretty small is it's moving into education. And the reason it's moving into education is because teachers are like totally crazy for sketch noting, and they're crazy for it because of a couple of things, because the teachers told me this, that they see their students really embracing it. Their students are actually in much more engaged when they teach because they're being given the the right to do doodling in class. Now, of course, it's directed toward the subject, but they get to do drawing and doodling and stuff. So they get engagement. And then the the other benefit that teachers seem to be really excited about is when they use sketchnoting in the classroom, the students actually remember a way lot more, right? So it becomes this really great tool that gives them the ability to analyze and process what a teacher wants and then remember more. So when they go to a test, um, they can actually do better. In fact, um, I have one friend in the um, in the Fresno School District in the science department that does something called sketchbooking, which uses the sketchnote technique in it. And I and I believe she lets the students like as they learn stuff in science, they get they have to draw it in their sketchbook and it gets graded. And then at test time, I believe they have open book testing, so they give them a test and they can have their sketchbook there to re- anything they write is fair game to reference. So like you think about the virtuous cycle that gets created there where a student knows that this stuff's going to be on a test, Well, they're going to pay attention and they're going to put that stuff in their notebook. Cause if I can look at it in my notebook and I caught it, like I could, you know, really do well in the test. Right. Ultimately it's, can you analyze and make sense of the world? Right. That's really what education is coming to. If you think about it. So it's teachers are really excited. So that's got me super excited. And then I guess the second thing that I'm excited about is, um, doing more teaching. So when the pandemic came in March, just like everyone, I was kind of shocked and it took a little while to kind of settle in, but I started noticing all these local meetups, uh, visual thinking Copenhagen or uh, the visual jam or a variety of different events that normally would be, you know, 15 people in a, in the back of a restaurant in Copenhagen and nobody ever knew about it except them. Suddenly they have these international audiences, right? hundred people coming from around the world being part of these communities. That is super exciting. And I think the opportunity for us, even though it's not a great situation to have to be forced to be in this digital space and figure out training and teaching and cameras and microphones, that the, the benefit is going to be, it's going to actually get people connected in, in the future and give opportunities for people who want to, like me, to start doing teaching and reach people that I might never have reached because I probably wouldn't fly to their city, right? Now I can do online courses and teach stuff like lettering or layout or whatever I whatever the students want, really. So I'm really excited about this opportunity for the last eight months to build up my te- technical skills and technical gear and, you know, having tested it to be able to now feel confident that I can teach. So that's really exciting as well for me. And that is Mike Rohde, author of Sketchnotes. Mike and I nerded out on design, pens, AV gear, and brand strategy after the show stopped recording. I could have talked for hours with him. He's such a fascinating individual. And he really made me rethink. Maybe I'm a designer after all. And you see, that's the power of Mike Rohde. He's a teacher at heart, and the best teachers are the ones who can see in you what you can't see in yourself. Mike is on a mission to teach, to teach sketchnoting, 
to teach design. I don't think he really cares what he teaches as long as he's teaching. It's his inner nature, and we're all better off for it. A big thank you to Mike Rohde and the Sketchnote team. I can't wait to see what you come up with next. I'll be taking one of Mike's workshops that will have taken place by the time this airs, but check out his website for upcoming workshops and opportunities to learn sketchnoting. We will link to all things Mike Rohde and sketchnoting in the show notes, including his books over at Amazon. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. 